Matthew 9, verse 18. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come to uh, this, uh, your word. Uh, we pray that uh, what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us in order that the Lord Jesus might be glorified. So this we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, 2008, an insurance company in London commissioned an artist to produce a piece of work to go above their front door, right in the heart of the city of London. Uh, and so uh, at midnight, stroke of midnight, 2008, 2009 began, this, this work of art was revealed. Uh, but it wasn't quite what anyone expected. Uh, instead of being a, a sculpture or a picture or anything like that, really, it was a clock, but no ordinary clock. Uh, at the stroke of midnight, the dials that were zero, 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 zero started counting upwards. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Two a second, and on it went. Uh, what was it? It was a clock counting up the number of people dying around the world. Two a second. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And on and on it ran all year until midnight. 2009, it had gone just north of 55 million people. Imagine going into work every morning and that being the, the front door. Okay, that's the door you go through. You go home one night and it's on 200,000. Come back the next morning, 220,000. You leave work later that day, 280,000. Up and up it goes, relentlessly, incessantly, never stopping, never dropping, just on and on and on. We're very screened off from death, aren't we? Uh, most of us, at least. Uh, some of you work in, in hospitals, so I guess that's not the case for you. But, but for most of us, we're, we're, quite, we're quite screened off uh, in a way that's never really happened in, in generations before. When people get old, we, we put them into homes uh, or hospitals. Uh, it's likely that for many of us, we've never seen someone die. And so that the reality of death can just, will just fade from our consciousness a, a little bit. In the church where I was assistant minister, it was an old, you know, probably about a thousand years old-ish, uh, an old building. And so it was set, as many churches are in England, in the middle of a graveyard. So the walk to work or the walk to worship on a Sunday morning, you came through, well, graves. Some of them are hundreds of years old, but, but some of them fresh. I was back there a couple of weeks ago for a meeting. And again, very sadly, there are new graves there. People's names that I've known for 10, 15, maybe 20 years now are now planted in that graveyard. 
Uh, people who I stood next to in church uh, to sing God's praise, people who I prayed with, people who I had Sunday lunch with are now planted and buried. And it's a stark reminder of the seemingly unconquerable power of death. Death stands at, at the end of the, the tunnel of our life, is it like, as, a, as an undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, we win little mini victories en route. Okay, you know, we succeed at school and get our grades. We win a little victory. Life seems good. We, we marry the girl or guy of our dreams. A little mini victory and life seems good. We, we get the job that we always wanted and climb the career ladder, ride the house that we want and all life seems good. Little victory, victory, victory. But ultimately there is one enemy at the end who we're just not going to beat. He strikes down everybody. He never loses and there is simply no escape. All of our destiny ultimately is to be another notch on his belt. And as our passage begins, it begins on that somber, tragic note. Behold a ruler. That would have been a, essentially a bit like we have ruling elders in, in the church. God's always ruled his people through elders or cared for his people through elders in the synagogue as much as the church nowadays. Elders aren't the New Testament things. This is a ruling elder. Elsewhere he's called Jairus. He comes in, he kneels before Jesus and says, my daughter, has just died. What a tragic scene. This is no fair fight. Death versus a little girl, 12 years old, we read elsewhere in the other Gospels. She's not had a good innings. Uh, This is tragic. A little girl, a little girl. And she lies dead. Uh, Death is the ultimate enemy and one that we desperately need an answer Two, uh, through Mark's gospel, at least through chapters eight and nine, we've been seeing that, that Jesus' power has been demonstrated uh, and calling for the response of faith. Uh, so this morning, I, I want to look at three, three aspects of faith, I guess we might uh, call them. So first of all, I want to look at the question that faith asks. The question that faith asks is verses 18 and 19. This little girl uh, struck dead. But just look at the, the, the words, look at the way the father speaks. Because already, if you're feeling the, the weight of the tragedy, already there's hope. Uh, so it's the two, two words stand together in verse 18 that are so startling. Do, do you notice them? Two words right next to each other. So small, but so full of hope. My daughter has just died, but. My daughter has just died, but. There's a but. She's dead, but. It's not, she's, my daughter has died and we've fallen apart. My daughter has died and I don't know what to say or do. My daughter has died, but. See the hope in his faith already? Uh, the reason he's got faith, hope, well, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. She's died, but. Come and touch her, Jesus, and she will live. Not she might live, not perhaps she will live, not she could live, but she will live. Do you see the certain faith he has? Just come and touch her and she will live. And what does Jesus do? Verse 19, he rose and followed him with his disciples. Now, usually that's the other way around. So far in Mark's gospel, as Jesus calls people, they rise and follow him. 
That's the, the discipleship pattern. Jesus calls to Matthew. Uh, look up verse uh, 9, just a few verses above. We get exactly that pattern of words. Follow me. And he, that's Matthew, the tax collector, rose and followed Jesus. But here it's the other way around. Uh, this man comes to Jesus with his tragedy. Jesus rises up and follows him. God's son, God incarnate, God in the flesh, God made man, rises up and heads towards death. Uh, that is the, the God of the universe. That is the God that we serve. This is what God is like. He rises up and heads towards our suffering, not from it. Uh, he's not interested in the strong and the powerful and the successful, but rather he, he is drawn, as it were, towards those who are in need, who are suffering. Uh, towards those in the depths of despair. Uh, that is what God is like. Christ is the revelation of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Christ and you see him rising up and, and heading resolutely towards death. And that is why this ruler, this Jairus, has, has read the character of Christ right when he says, my daughter has died, but... And that's, that's the question, if you like, that is going to frame our time this morning. Can, can you look death in the eye and say, death, but... When someone who's a, a believer, who's close to you, dies, can, can you look at them and say, she's died, but she will live. When one day death comes for you, as he surely will, will you better look death in the eye and say... I will die, but I will yet live because of Christ. Faith, the faith of this man enables him to, to look this, this terrible warrior of death in the eye. Uh, this dreadful champion who's slain his millions upon millions upon millions and say, yes, but you may slay me, but I will live But actually, before we see that the, the conflict between Jesus and death face to face, we get a, what you might almost say, a distraction en route. Verses 20 to 22, the courage that faith grows. The courage that faith grows. Verses 20 to 22. Uh, he heads off towards death. But, behold, a woman who'd suffered from a discharge of blood, she'd been bleeding, menstrual bleeding for 12 years, just sneaks up behind. You see, children, she doesn't come and ask him. She sneaks behind him and just, well, what does she do? See what she does? She just touches the fringe of his garment. That means just sort of touches the little tassels. Jewish men would wear these robes with tassels on the corner. It's all laid out in the Old Testament. She just touched one of them. Now, this woman has been bleeding for, for 12 years. Uh, this incident is recorded in all the Gospels. Matthew's very short, actually. The other Gospels give us much more detail. If you know the other Gospels, you'll know there's, the story is sort of fleshed out more. There's more drama almost. Matthew's just bang to the point uh, every time. Uh, it's quite a nice touch. Mark's Gospel uh, tells us that she, um, uh, she suffered much under many doctors and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather got worse. Uh, Luke, who's a doctor himself, says she was just incurable. <laughs> Batting for the doctors there, Luke. <laughs> But, but Matthew, just straight in there, she's been bleeding for 12 years. Now, we would think, we would think, well, her main problem, therefore, was physical. This poor woman, she's bleeding for 12 years. And, of course, that is a, a huge problem. But, but I think if we, were, if we were Jewish, if we were there at the time, we'd know that she, 
even beyond, might we say, the physical problem. Uh, There's a greater burden on her. Uh, Let me read to you from, from Leviticus 15. I'll be reading 19 to 23 if you want to turn to it, do. But if not, just just listen. Leviticus 15, listen to this description of life for this woman. And particularly, listen out for this word touch that's going to come several times. Leviticus 15. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it's the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. This constant bleeding made her ceremonially unclean, we might say. Uh, that means she, she couldn't gather at the, the temple, or the tabernacle. She, she wasn't allowed to come into the, the, great, well, the great church, we might say, uh, of the Old Testament. It meant that, that no one could touch her without also being unable to come to church. Uh, they became unclean too. Now, I would say straight away, this isn't just aimed at women. If I'd read the whole of Leviticus 15, we'd see all sorts of things that made a man unclean too. Okay, so I don't think this is a sort of anti-woman thing. In fact, you know, some of the guys who've worked on this a little bit have worked out that all things being equal, if you're a bloke, you're probably going to spend more time unclean than a woman just because of the way body cycles work. But either way, for this woman, bleeding for 12 years, with no way of getting made clean because it just doesn't stop, she'd essentially be not just in physical pain, but... Well, in many ways, isolated. Imagine not having come to church for 12 years. Not being able to sit on a sofa, the same sofa as someone, for 12 years. Knowing that anyone who touches you, shakes hand with you, gives you a hug, is themselves become unclean until they go through various ceremonies. You can imagine the people sort of backing away from her a little bit, smiling nicely, but just even the most holy among them, keeping their distance. Uh, that's why I think she doesn't approach Jesus directly. But, but sort of sneaks in the crowd, just reaches out. And what does she do? Touch, verse 21. If I just touch his garment. You hear in Leviticus how often, you know, if, you, if anything you touch becomes unclean, anything you touch becomes unclean, the bed you sit on the ground. Well, here, the touch of Jesus' garment ought to have made him unclean. But, but Jesus is clothed in righteousness, isn't he? Jesus is the Holy One, par excellence. We sung earlier, holy, holy, holy. Nothing can make Jesus unclean. He is more pure than our sin is dirty. So, so when she touches him, actually the flow is the other way from Leviticus. Instead of her making him unclean, she makes, sorry, he makes her clean. Now, uh, it's perhaps worth saying that this language of unclean applied to the woman doesn't mean that she was sinful. Okay? So, so uncleanliness in the Old Testament is not the same as sin. It's not sinful to be bleeding. It's just, well, suffering, isn't it? But it is a picture of sin. It's used time and time again in the Bible as a picture of sin, of the spiritual uncleanliness we have. And that's why I think when Jesus looks at her in verse 21 and says, oh, sorry, verse 22 and says, your faith has made you well, 
Matthew's doing a kind of wordplay there, or Jesus, I suppose we might say, but Matthew, as he records it, 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 it's a bit of a wordplay. It's a wordplay that in in the other Gospels, in Mark and Luke, happens loads of times. But in Matthew, it's just here. And the wordplay, which which is hard to pick up in English, is that the the word there is, is saved you. Okay, Your faith has saved you. So it can mean just saved you because you're not bleeding anymore. You know, you're better, you're restored to health. But, but it'd be the same word you'd use for saved, you know, eternally saved. I think that's deliberate. It's also why I think Jesus calls her daughter. Imagine hearing those words. You know, this woman who's been excluded for 12 years. Here's Jesus the Messiah saying, you're my daughter. You're back in the family. It is a, a picture, I think, of salvation as Jesus cleanses this woman and gathers her back to be a true daughter of God. The story is a story of two daughters, isn't it? The daughter who's died and the daughter who's unclean. And again, do you see her faith? Jesus turns to her and says, oh sorry, she says to herself in verse 21, if only I touch him, if I just touch him, it's all I need. Just a touch from Jesus and I'll be okay. She might be overly superstitious. She might have been too afraid to approach directly. There might be all sorts of things going on there, but she has got the faith to see that Jesus alone can save her. I just need Jesus and then I will be okay. And that's why in 22, he says to her, take heart, your faith has made you well. Now we need to be careful here. When Jesus says your, your faith has saved you, if you like, to, to use that, that word play. I think sometimes, we, sometimes as Christians, we get confused about this. We've been taught from, from the earliest age we've been around church that we're saved not by works, but by faith. Okay? Hopefully you've got that. If you're Christian or if you've been around church for a while, hopefully you've got into your, into your mind, we're not saved by works, by what we do, but by faith. But I think even when we've got that in our heads, sometimes we still misunderstand what, what the Bible means by that, what God means by that. I, I think very often we, we, we think what, what God is saying to us when he says we're saved by faith not by works, is that, well, God has agreed to sort of lower the pass mark, drop the bar a little bit. So, so plan A was that we were good enough to enter heaven. We've messed it up. We're sinful. We've fallen short. So, so God sits in heaven and says, okay, well, you're not good enough to earn your way to heaven. But I'll tell you what, I'll cut you a deal. From now on, instead of having to work to get your way into heaven, be good, I'll let you off with just believing. Okay, just bring your faith and then I'll let you in. The problem with that understanding is that it turns faith, believing, into something we have to do again, doesn't it? You see that? It means that, that, that faith is the kind of little bit that we bring to God. We, we, we should have brought him our good works. We, we messed that up. And so God says, well, no, seeing as you haven't done that, how about you just bring me something less? Just bring me faith. That, that is not what the Bible means by being saved by faith. Children, it's really important you understand this. And I know it takes a little bit of thinking about Adults, it's important you understand it too. Uh, Saying we're saved by faith uh, is like saying that a starving man is saved by the hands that the bread is put in. Uh, Or a man who is uh, dying of some disease is saved by by his mouth that receives the, the medicine. Now, on the one hand, you need to put your hands out to receive the bread. If you're starving children, and someone comes to you and says, you know, here's some bread, you, you put your hands out, you receive the bread. But it's not your hands that save you, really, is it? What really saves you is the bread. 
You know, if you're dying, you're really ill in hospital, and a doctor comes and says, open wide, I'm going to put some medicine in, you know, on a spoon, here we go. You wouldn't say afterwards, hey, my mouth may be better, would you? You'd say the medicine may be better. So faith is a bit like the mouth there, okay, or the hands receiving the bread. It's not something that we do or bring to God. It's simply us coming to God and saying, well, I can't do anything. Let Jesus save me instead. Faith is our way of receiving God's gift of salvation. So when Jesus says your faith has saved you or faith has made you well, he's not rewarding her. Well done, you're so full of faith, I've decided to give you the gift of salvation. Rather, he's saying, because you came and touched me, because you realised that I was the only one who could save you, well, my power has saved you. Uh, One of my friends talks about faith being pulled out of us rather than pushed out of us. Your faith grows, therefore, not by you trying really hard to have more faith, but rather by looking more and more at Christ. It is kind of drawn out of you. Jesus, if you like, is like a magnet, attracting, you know, pulling faith out of us, strengthening it. And that's why I think in this passage we, we see, well, weak and strong faith. John, if you, let me ask you a question. Who do you think has a stronger faith? The man who came at the beginning, who says, my daughter's died, but if you just touch her, she'll live again. Or the woman who kind of crept up behind Jesus a little bit nervously and kind of touched him and ran away. Which one would you say had a really strong faith? And which one do you think is a bit weaker? You see, I would say the man had stronger faith, wouldn't you? He was confident. Just touch my daughter and she'll come back to life. Whereas the woman was a bit hesitant. But, but which one of them got what they asked for? Both, exactly. One had weak faith. One had strong faith. But they both received the kind of saving that they'd asked for. Because being saved doesn't rest on our faith, being it strong or weak, but it rests on the one who's actually doing the saving, Jesus. Earlier in the year, I had to go to America on an aeroplane. I think I've probably said before, I hate aeroplanes. I'm just scared of them, terrified of them. I hate flying. I really hate flying. And I was flying with a friend. uh, And uh, the friend doesn't hate aeroplanes. He's quite confident. Now, I had enough confidence in the aeroplane, enough faith, you might say, to get on it, okay? You know, I thought it was more likely not to blow up than to blow up, okay? Over 50% chance it's going to land the other end, and I, you know, had a job to do, so I got on the aeroplane. Uh, my friend, who I, I flew with, 100% confidence, just marched onto the aeroplane, okay? We both got on, me with my little bit of faith, him with his confident faith. Um, and he was, you know, some of you might know him, he's a minister in, in York, Matthew Roberts, he was explaining to me how aeroplanes work, don't understand it at all. Uh, jet engines, couldn't care less. Uh, he's really trying to kind of strengthen my faith, Boof, whatever, didn't care. But I crept onto the plane and he marched onto the plane. He marches everywhere, okay? He's, he's <laughs> confident. So weak faith, strong faith, both of us got on the plane. Which of us arrived more safely in America? Well, we arrived the same. It doesn't matter how strong or weak our faith was, because it wasn't our faith that was getting us there, it was the plane. Uh, weak faith or strong faith, if it's in Christ, you will be saved. But, well, but, the stronger your faith is, the more courage you're going to have for the journey. If I'd had more, courage, more faith in the plane, then I'd have had a, frankly, more pleasant journey. 
And that's why I think in uh, verse 22, when Jesus looks at this woman and stops and talks to her, he says, take heart. Have courage, that is. As your faith grows, well, so will your courage. Uh, Jesus used this phrase just to, in the, the previous miracle as well, uh, the healing of the paralytic. Uh, so in, uh, in chapter 9 still, uh, and verse uh, back, uh, verse 2, he looks at the paralytic and says, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And here, take, or take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And here, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. They're parallel expressions, deliberately, I'm sure. Have courage. Okay, if you put your trust in me, I've got everything. So be confident, be full of courage, be full of certainty. Jesus comes and says, have courage. I've defeated everything that threatens you. Sin in the paralytic's case. Take courage, I've dealt with it. I've come to destroy sin. Death, here in this passage, take courage. Disease. Matthew's Gospel began at the beginning of the Gospel of, Matthew, of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the king. And the first job of any king, children, in any fairy story you've ever read, or any movie you've ever watched, what, what's the king's first job? is to defend his people, isn't it? To be the bravest knight on the battlefield, to fight for his people. Well, in Matthew 8 and 9, that's what Jesus does. He, he rides into battle, as it were, and he defeats enemy after enemy. He defeats leprosy. He defeats sickness. He defeats the storm and brings nature under his control. He defeats the devil, the, the, the demons who possessed uh, those two men. Uh, he defeats sin and forgives the paralytic. He defeats death even here. Disease, demons, sin, death. And so he says, take heart, because I've done it. Not take heart because you've got such strong faith, but take heart, I've conquered. There's a film, I can't actually remember the name of the film, uh, a film about the, the Trojan War, okay, back in ancient, ancient history. And Brad Pitt plays Achilles, this great warrior. And at one point in the battle, these two armies come together and they decide that rather than fighting, all of them, thousands upon thousands, they'll send out their best man each. Each, man, each army will send out his best soldier, and they will find whoever wins, well, wins the battle. And the, you know, the, the baddies send forth this massive, great, you know, snarling guy, and Brad Pitt comes out, Achilles comes out, the King Ag- Agamemnon, uh, and he wins. Okay, Brad Pitt runs forward, jumps in the air, does a little sort of flip, and kills the bad guy. And he stands there as champion on the field, and he looks at all these other thousand soldiers against him, and he, and he almost roars at them, is there anyone else? Is there anyone else? Anyone else want to come out here and fight me? Anyone else think they can defeat me? And no one does. He stands there as the champion soldier on the battlefield. And that in many ways is what Matthew, Jesus is doing in, the, in these chapters. Is there anyone else? I can defeat leprosy and disease. I can defeat nature and storms. I can defeat the devil and the demons. I can defeat sin. I can even defeat death. Is there anyone else? Who can stand against you? Is there no one else? And there isn't. And that's why faith's called is a call to courage. The more we look at Christ, the more we realise his strength, his victories, the more, well, faith will grow our courage. And then just to the last three verses, verses 23 to 26, uh, we see that this, this courage, this faith, is a secure hope. So this is the hope that faith secures in verses 23 to 26. The hope that faith secures. Jesus 
moves on from this woman and he goes to the house of this young girl who's died. And he sees, well, when he gets there, children, it's strange, isn't it, what he sees? He sees a kind of orchestra, the flute players and the crowd making commotion. Now, this will seem very strange, but in those days, when someone died, it was hot, you had to bury them quickly. And so you would employ people to come and play these kind of flutes, you know, or pipes to make a horrible wailing noise. And you'd employ at least two of them, apparently, and one woman to come in and kind of shriek and wail. They were like professional mourners, professional sad people. And so they're making this great cacophony, this great commotion. And Jesus comes in and says, well, the girl's not dead, but asleep. Now, she is dead, okay? Don't misunderstand this. She is dead. But to Jesus, death is like sleep. It's as easy for Jesus to wake a girl from the dead as it is for you to wake someone from sleep. Her heart stopped beating, her lungs have stopped breathing. There's no brain activity, whatever your medical definition of death is. She fits the criteria, but to Jesus, it's like she's asleep. The king of life is in the room. Uh, The one who spoke and the universe came into being uh, in the first place uh, is standing by her bed. And just as at creation, he drives out the chaos, you know, of darkness. Well, so here, he drives out all that cacophony. He, he, they laugh at him, but they dry, he drives them out of the room. He puts them outside, all these wailers and weepers and mourners, the flute players. Go away. And he touches her. And verse 25, the girl arose. Girl arose. It's the only resurrection story in Matthew. Other gospels have more. You might remember the story of Lazarus and various others. But but in Matthew, this is it. Apart from Jesus' resurrection, obviously. And it's the resurrection word. She arose. Second time someone's arisen in the passage. First of all, remember Jesus rose up and headed towards death. And now he touches her and she rises up from death back to life. And so it's a picture of what Christ will ultimately do. He will ultimately not just walk towards death in terms of a young girl who's died, but he will march towards death in himself. He himself will throw himself into the the pits of death in order that he might defeat death and rise again as that undefeated champion. Jesus went into the grave and he looked just like another statistic. That death clock would have ticked on a failed messiah. Two crucified thieves, beat, 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 just another day. But, but for three, three days later, for the first time, the, the clock stopped. And for the only time in history, it had to reverse. This little girl, Lazarus, some of the resurrections elsewhere in the Bible, they're, they're short term, aren't they? This little girl died again, ultimately. But with Jesus, for the first time, that, that clock would have had to go backwards. And therefore, one day, it will really have to reverse. One day it will have to shoot backwards. Jesus came not just to defeat death for himself, but to defeat death for his people. He didn't need to defeat death for himself. He was already alive. He's God. God can't be touched by death. But he came, children, to rescue you and me from death. Well, the Puritans said, we talk, talk, don't we, about Jesus becoming the head of the body, the church. But actually, Jesus became the head of a dead body, to quote one of the Puritans. We're all dead. But his life flows to us, which means we've got comfort and courage. It should give us great comfort as we look at Christ. We sang Psalm 30 earlier. Weeping may last for the night, but joy will come in the morning. We've turned my morning into dancing. Your life right now, your life circumstances may be 
well, funeral pipes and wailing women. You know, I pray they're not. We pray that God relieves suffering in your life. But at some point, that is what your life will be. At some point, well, weeping will come. Death of those you love, your own death. But joy has come in the morning because Christ has risen. And Christ, having defeated death, gives that life to all of us. Now, if you die literally now, if you're trusting in Christ, you go to heaven, your body's buried. And then when Christ returns, your body will be raised and you'll have physical life again. And that's the time scale. But death is now defeated. And one day when Christ returns, that clock will come shooting backwards. 55 million down to 54, 53, 52, 51. And heaven is going to be crammed full of people because of Christ's resurrection. And so you can take courage. We have comfort and we can take courage. Faith in this passage gives people courage. So we close with this. Evangelist D.L. Moody, who is a 19th century evangelist, a great Christian man. He said this, one day you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is all. Out of this old clay house and into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. That is the courage you can have in the face of death. Because Christ has strode onto the field and there is no one else. He has defeated all in his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you uh, that there is no one strong enough to hold the Lord Jesus, that death couldn't bind him, uh, that sin couldn't corrupt him, uh, that all the disease and suffering of this world could not overcome him. Oh, thank you so much uh, that he entered the fight for our sake that he was willing in love and grace to be crucified and buried for us. And so we pray that you would give us faith in his death and in his resurrection. And might we know that he has burst from the grave, that he does reign on high, that no one stands against him. And therefore that uh, even the smallest faith in him brings eternal life. Give us courage, we pray, and gather many more to his name. I do this, we pray, for his name's sake. Amen.